beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? What wisdom is there for us as white Christians in these troubled, violent times of pandemics, rising authoritarianism, and racial capitalism? What beauty can we find in our resistance? I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap, pronouns she, her, hers. I'm a United Church of Christ minister, and I'm the faith organizing coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE. I live in the place currently called Buffalo, New York, here in the homelands of the Haudenosaunee peoples. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians, white Christians talking to other white Christians about race and white supremacy. We believe white Christians like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. And we do this work remembering we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. The word is resistance. Well, beloveds, I am back from sabbatical. This is my third week back to work, and I'm kind of overwhelmed by all the things. I had an amazing time of rest and connection with my ancestors and came back with a commitment to building a world where we all have openness and spaciousness in our rhythms of living for rest and exploration and connection. We all need that and deserve it. I'm also really grateful to our podcast crew for the great episodes in this disability justice series that has been going on since the summer. As you know, this series has been looking at the lectionary readings from Luke's Gospel and asking, what can we learn about these stories by centering disability justice as our interpretive lens? What can we learn as white Christians about how ableism in the texts themselves, as well as in how the texts have been used and interpreted, about how ableism upholds white supremacy and about how centering disability justice is key to collective liberation? So our story from Luke today is another pretty well-known parable about an unnamed rich man and a poor man named Lazarus, not to be confused with Jesus's friend Lazarus we read about in John's Gospel. So here's the reading from Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, 
where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. The rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Let's take some good deep breaths here during our musical break. Well, wow, there is a lot going on in this parable, isn't there? For one thing, on the face of it, this parable sounds like Jesus is saying, one, there is such a place as hell, or Hades, where people will be tormented when they die. And two, apparently rich people are going there. And possibly three, therefore, poor people should not do anything in this lifetime to object to being poor. They should just wait for their reward in heaven. But as Nicola talked about in last week's episode, these parables are turning all kinds of tables upside down. And so we want to be mindful about that first surface impression of what we think the parable is saying, which is often what we've been taught the parable is saying. So I want to address that up front because I do think challenging that interpretation will help us in getting at a disability justice reading of this story. So even though at the time there was some conversation both within Judaism and beyond about the afterlife and the possibility of a place of a place of punishment, hell, Hades, call it what you will, even though that was happening, nothing was particularly set in stone. For example, Christian doctrines about that came much later. But even if it's a given that the conversation was in the air, I don't actually think Jesus was much interested in it. When I look at how he treated people, he doesn't seem to be much interested in punishment. In his healing stories, for example, he sometimes heals people with questionable morals without asking them to change their behavior. In fact, he doesn't even ask them about it. So I think punishment is not a theological model Jesus is particularly invested in. However, I do think he used the metaphor of it the metaphor of places of punishment and judgment to illuminate the real material impacts of people's behavior right here and right now in this lifetime. 
the ways in which we create chasms of hell on earth right here. Because I see Jesus being very interested in, very invested in relieving the real material impacts of hunger, poverty, trauma, and illness on people's bodies and spirits right now. He feeds them now. He heals them now. He doesn't send them away to wait for their suffering to be relieved in heaven. And I do see him interested in and invested in repentance, that is, of people changing their harmful ways and choosing ways that contribute to the flourishing of life. But calling people to repentance, to transformation, to accountability, is not the same thing as advocating for punishment, for tossing people across a chasm into agony and torment. I think of the transformative justice mantra, no one is disposable, and I think Jesus would be down with that. So then, what is up with this parable? Because the rich man has clearly been disposed of, apparently. Is that what Jesus is warning against? Hey, rich people, you're going to hell if you don't repent. I mean, it's definitely an an understandable and very human desire to want that to be true, but I don't think so. I think this parable is telling us about the chasm the rich man has created for himself, illuminating for us how challenging it is to serve God and not wealth as last week's text says. It's about the chasm between the purple bedecked 1% and the rest of us. It's the chasm that leaves poor, hungry, disabled folks at the gates while the wealthy have sumptuous feasts. It's the chasm that tells the rich man that even in death, he is supposed to be served by Lazarus. It's the chasm that claims we didn't know when Moses and prophets have been telling us, and even more, when clearly the rich man knows Lazarus's name, which means he did know and did nothing. It's the chasm that says our nice behavior towards some people, like the rich man wanting his brothers to avoid suffering, should be the get-out-of-hell-free card for the rest of our behavior. It's a chasm that, yes, is about individual behavior, but it's also the chasm built into our systems and structures, a chasm that wealth and power assures is ultimately uncrossable, a chasm that assures that if you quietly hold up a sign saying fuck the monarchy during one of the Queen of England's many funeral processions, you will, in fact, be arrested. You had to know I was going there this week of all weeks, right? This parable is at least in part about the excuses we make for the violence of wealth and power. The excuses we make for the violence our ancestors did, the impact of which we are still experiencing. When we claim we didn't know or that our ancestors lived in different times and so didn't know what we know now, or that, for example, the queen was so kind and loved her family. No, this parable says, nope. We're not having it. This parable 
is clear that the rich man both knew Lazarus's name and also had access to Moses and the prophets, which is to say he both knew who was at his gate and also chose to ignore the teachings that told him what to do about Lazarus's suffering. And the rich man's desire to keep his brothers from suffering may be commendable, but also they already have the resources to know what to do and that desire to keep his brothers from suffering, that is not enough to save the rich man from the impact of his actions. And I think that's what this parable is about too, that the rich man cannot escape the impact of his actions. Yes, in this lifetime. I think it's really hard to see and believe that the quote-unquote rich men get held accountable because the oppressive structures we live in make it so difficult to bring oppressors to accountability. And yet the parable tells us it's true. A man in Wales yelled in King Charles's face during his visit to Cardiff last weekend, Charles, while we struggle to heat our homes, we have to pay for your parade. The taxpayer pays a hundred million dollars pounds, hundred million pounds for you. And what for? And though the coverage in favor of the monarchy was overwhelming, seriously overwhelming, the pomp and circumstance and orderliness of it all, reinforcing how awesome the monarchy is, even without any commentary at all. Like, talk about a chasm. Even still, the Cardiff protester was not alone. Dismantling the monarchy is an active conversation. The historic and ongoing colonization by Britain of well, most of the world, is being lifted up and visibilized in whole new ways. There are repeated calls for reparations from the former colonies. Commonwealth nations that were former colonies and populated by Africans enslaved by Britain have been declaring independence from the crown and will continue to do so. Even Northern Ireland and Scotland, also colonized by the English crown, are increasingly in favor of independence. And this is part of how that chasm closes when people refuse to participate in its perpetuation. Which brings me to another thing I think this parable is about, which is the fear the wealthy and powerful have about losing their place. They think it will be agony. They think it means nothing for themselves and everything for everyone else. They think no one will be left to serve them. They think it will be the inverse of the chasm they created and perpetuated, the haves on one side, the have-nots on the other. And I keep saying they, but it's really us too, you know, and the ways that we get defensive when we think our power is being taken away from us. Like so many white folks' reaction to the call to defund police and invest in community instead. And though the end of the parable seems rather dire, neither will they be convinced that even if someone raises from the dead, like there's no hope for change? What I begin to hear underneath that is actually encouragement. You have all you need already. You have all you need already to close this chasm. You have all you need. We have all we need. And don't need to be afraid when the chasm is healed. This is a lot of work for one parable to be doing, right? Naming the chasm that's created by wealth and power between the 1% and the rest of us. 
refusing to make or accept excuses for that chasm and how it gets perpetuated, and reminding all of us that if we listen to Moses and the prophets, we'd remember that the divine's vision for us is not an inverse power structure of domination, but no domination at all. In the divine's beloved flourishing community, there are no chasms we can't cross, and maybe even no chasms at all. One more thing I think this parable is doing is reminding us that even death is not enough to change some people. In his death-drenched agony, the rich man in this story still assumes that he is owed service from Lazarus. He is not changed, even in his own suffering. This parable illuminates for those of us who are fighting to build a better world that strategies that rely on hoping that the rich and powerful will change their hearts and minds when confronted with suffering may not actually work. Maybe you were like me during this pandemic and have hoped that the mass death, suffering, and disability caused by COVID would lead to some real, tangible, systemic change towards collective well-being. That the hearts and minds of politicians, insurance companies, landlords, even the CDC would side with the people for once. And yet here we are, looking across this great chasm of COVID being the leading cause of death last week in this country. And in fact, one of the top three leading causes of death since March 2020. Not to mention lives impacted by long COVID or by losing your job because you were too sick to work and on and on. All while Biden was on 60 Minutes on Sunday saying the pandemic is over. In a piece about Biden's statement, Nate Holdren says, Much of the banal evil of the pandemic arises from institutions not wanting to bear various kinds of costs that capitalist society generates, even if the result is suffering and death for others. Which is to say, the rich man knew Lazarus's name. Institutions know Lazarus's name, know he is hungry and in pain at the gate, and have decided that he is not worth the cost. To racial capitalism, our lives are not worth the cost the cost of change, the cost of investing in collective well-being. When I was in Scotland this summer, I attended church one Sunday where the pastor preached about her concern that people in her congregation would not be able to survive this winter because energy costs were already skyrocketing. How would they stay warm? Yes, the same thing the Welsh protester was shouting at Charles about. So the pastor said wealthier people were saying to her, well, somebody has to bear the cost of the pandemic. In case you're wondering, as I watched the news there, it's all the same oil companies that we're worried about over here. So we're all connected. Somebody has to bear the cost. 
and that somebody in racial capitalism is always Lazarus at the gate. Poor, hungry, and let's not forget disabled. He has sores all over his body, so we can assume that Lazarus is poor and hungry precisely because he is disabled, unable to work or provide for himself because of long-term illness. And it has been disability justice organizers who have been telling us all along that wealth and power do not care about us. And confronting the powerful with suffering and death is not actually enough to change them or the system because racial capitalism relies on suffering and death to function. This seems so dire, right? I think we really desperately want to believe people can change. It's another key piece of transformative justice, right? And a rather key piece of Christian teaching, the belief that people can repent, can change. And it does happen sometimes. It does. And I'm not saying we should stop trying to work towards that, but I do think this parable is warning us that if trying to get the 1% to change is all we're doing, it's not going to be enough. This reality that racial capitalism will do everything in its power to not change, including ignoring suffering and death, has to inform our organizing for a better world. Mia Mingus, a really brilliant disability justice and transformative justice organizer I admire and follow, said this about Biden's comment. All Biden's words have done is make clear, abundantly clear, what we have already known. That we are on our own for the pandemic, and the little that still remains for some will be gone. Obviously, wealthy folks will be able to access whatever they want whenever, as per usual, Our work now should be cultural changes so that we can get our folks to get boosted, wear masks, and continue other safety precautions. That's Mia Mingus. We're on our own. Maybe that feels a little scary. So take a breath there. Take a breath. Feel into your sweet, beloved body. And remember, yes, we can name the chasm that is created by wealth and power between the 1% and the rest of us. Yes, we can refuse to make or accept excuses for that chasm and how it gets perpetuated. And yes, we can remember to listen to Moses and the prophets, not only of our tradition, but the Moses and Miriams and prophets of our own time, like me and Mingus, like so many others, to learn what's needed to heal these chasms which includes recognizing that the 1% may not be with us, but we, the rest of us, can build together, can care for one another, can keep each other safe. This is the disability justice reading of this story, that the chasm doesn't have to divide the rest of us, that we may be on our own, but we are actually not alone. We have each other. We have people who know what needs to be done, to heal those chasms. We have all we need. For your call to action this week, I encourage you to check out that Twitter thread from Mia Mingus, which she also posted on Instagram. 
because it has concrete examples of those cultural changes she talks about. Concrete things we can do together to try to reduce transmission and thus suffering, disability, and death as much as we can. Things like taking selfies with our masks on, showing off our booster band-aids, and having loving conversations with our people. I encourage you to take those conversations into places like your churches, too. Our congregation, for example, continues to mask for worship because we know it's one of the best things we can do to keep our more vulnerable members, and really all of us, safe. These chasms are disabling. That's part of what they do. So keep watching for where you're noticing them. There, there are too many to list, and really they are all just different views of the same racial capitalist chasm. Watch for them and contribute in some way to the people's response. The people's response. And to groups that are organizing to build a better world, not just double down on racial capitalism. Maybe it's donating or mutual aid or community defense, but there's a place for you in these fights, in this healing work. Thanks, as always, for joining us from wherever you are on this good earth. We'd love to hear from you all, especially from folks of color and non-Christian folks, by filling out the listener survey on our podcast page at surge.org. And give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to our podcast. You can find out more about Surge at surge.org, and our podcast lives on SoundCloud. Search on the word is resistance. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. And we'll be back next week with a resistance word from Nicola Torbett, who I want to thank again for coordinating all the podcast things while I was on sabbatical. Thank you, Nicola. And of course, a huge thanks to our sound editor, Claire Hitchens. Blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap.